The reading this evening is from the book of Revelation, chapter 13, beginning at the first verse. If you would like to follow it in the Church Bibles, it's on page 1,242. Revelation 13, 1. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, With the sword, they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf, and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honour of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. 
Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. If you've been here for the last, what, five, six weeks? Maybe it's longer than that, isn't it? Um, We've been working through Revelation. Uh, Where's Jamie? Is is Jamie around? Has he gone out? Well, if you heard Jamie Ginns preach uh, about a month ago, Jamie said, um, it's Revelation, it's got lots of kind of weird stuff going on in it. And I'm slightly paraphrasing here, he's walked in, Jamie. Um, I'm paraphrasing you slightly, but you said something like, you really haven't got to worry about the beasts and the numbers. Well, if I I took a literal approach to Jamie's words, uh, this would be a very short preach this evening. You could all go home uh, half an hour early, because basically what we've got in here is is a couple of beasts and a number. So uh, forgive me, Jamie, I'm going to give it a stab, all right? I'm going to give it a go. Three other quick introductory things, which if you've been with us on the journey will be reminders, but if you you haven't, then uh, might help as we launch into this. The first thing to say is what we're looking at is what's called apocalyptic literature. Now, we aren't particularly familiar with apocalyptic literature nowadays, but 2,000 years ago, give or take, when this revelation was given to John, was in a culture where they were much more familiar with it. And as I will refer a little bit later on, they also had in there, of course, from the Old Testament, they had things like Daniel chapter 7, which is very much very similar apocalyptic literature with all these beasts and uh, and weird kind of things going on. So for them, hearing this for the first time, they were much more closer to it. They would have got it a lot more easily than we do. The second thing to say is as well, actually 2,000 years of church history in some ways has not helped us to understand this passage because they didn't have loads of people burning the midnight oil and coming up and sitting in libraries and analysing and working out this number and that number and this person and all of that. They would just take it as it was in their culture and it would speak to them. So point one of my intro is let's try, and I know it's impossible in one sense because we live in the time that we live, but let's try to a little bit climb into their headspace with this. The second thing to say is, let's remind ourselves that this is a revelation, this is a vision. This is something that John saw. It wasn't a book or a a piece of paper that dropped out of the sky, but he he saw this. Bit like, and, and we've all had dreams, and maybe we've all sat at the breakfast table from time to time, and a member of our family has come in and said, you won't believe the dream that I had last night. Now, sometimes those dreams are quite boring, but sometimes they're quite interesting and quite humorous, aren't they? And you sit there and you listen to this dream and you won't believe what happened next. And you're saying, go on, then tell us what happened next. It's a little bit like that in here. We're saying, right, tell us what happened next. What what happened next in your dream, your, your revelation, your vision? The third thing to say is the chapter headings in Scripture aren't always helpful, and they're particularly not helpful, I suggest, here in Revelation. Again, as John's getting this revelation, Jesus doesn't say to him, and now, chapter 13. 
That doesn't happen. We put them in afterwards to help us with our reference points. This is actually a, the fourth scene in this revelation. And that scene commenced at the end of our numbers now, chapter 11, verse 19, and goes through to chapter 15, verse 14. So if we're in chapter 13, we're actually in the middle of a scene here. Now, who watches a a film or a TV program and just says, right, I'm only going to watch this little bit of the scene and now I'm going to leave that for a week or so and then come back to it? We don't do that, do we? We watch the whole scene because it makes sense. So what happened in what Eddie said last week, which is the first part of this scene, and what happens next week, whoever's preaching next week, is the continuation of this scene. My family know that uh, when we come to choose films... It's different people's turns to choose films in in, in the house. Uh, If an action film is chosen, the rest of the family get quite excited, and I think, oh, no, I'm going to fall asleep again. (laughs) Honestly, we'll get an hour into an action film, and I'll just feel my eyelids go in, and I start to doze off. And I'll fall asleep. And sometimes I can hear the family going, oh, Dad's falling asleep again. And I'll doze off, and, and half an hour later, I'll wake up. And I won't have a clue what's going on. And I'll turn to them and say, oh, uh, who's that bloke? Oh, Dad, you've not fallen asleep again, have you? Yeah, yeah, who is that? What's happened to him? Uh, Why has he only got one leg now? Oh, that was the car crash. Look, you're going to have to watch it again another time. So I just sit there for the last 20 minutes of this film, not having a clue what's going on, and get to the end of it and think, oh, well, at least I can choose what we watch next week. They sometimes say, you have to go back and watch it all again, Dad, but, but I never do. It's a bit like that here. Climbing into this, we need to understand where we've gone and where we're going in this film that we're looking at. So, a quick, very quick summary of last week, when Eddie was preaching the start of this scene, he referred to uh, the male child that was born that represented Jesus He spoke about a woman that represented the church and then he spoke about a dragon who is here in this section representing the devil. And what we have seen through this scene is this war that is raging, this cosmic battle that has been going on throughout time, throughout history, this this cosmic battle between the dragon, the devil and the church. And I must compliment Eddie, often, uh, whilst I'm, you know, looking at the strangest book and the strangest chapter in the strangest book, so thanks for that, Eddie, you, you, I owe you one for that. Nevertheless, the fact that we're actually looking at Revelation is, is not often done in churches, at least not all the way through. Now, you may have been churches where, they, where they've done it, but, but often we do the first bit, the letters at the start, they're quite easy, and try and work out which one are we in that, and then we kind of park it. So, so... Compliment, Eddie, for the fact that we're actually working through the whole book of Revelation here. And what I like of what what, what Eddie's been doing, and that scene from last week, is that sense of this operating on different levels, operating throughout time, at moments in time, and continuing through time. This cosmic battle, the devil is raging against the church, and I think we continue to agree with that, wouldn't we? With what we see going on in the world, that continues There is this battle going on, working out in our lives and in some of the things that we've been praying for up there this evening. So that's the scene. 
And so we have the dragon at the start of our chapter 13. Now, I said that this, is a, this needs to be seen. I'm going to put up in a minute, uh, and I'm not very pleasant, but nevertheless, uh, an artist's impression of this beast that's mentioned here in Revelation 13. So can you put that up, please, Noah? <clears throat> I will look at the scripture as you look at the, the picture there. So we have the dragon standing on the shore of the sea, and John says, I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads. So you can see the ten horns there. The seven heads, obviously, more horns than heads. So there's a couple of horns on some of the heads. With ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard. So you can see that this looks a little bit like a leopard. You can see the leopard, leopard spots. Um, but had feet like those of a bear. Can you see those Bear's feet coming out of the sea there. Uh, and a mouth like that of a lion. That's a, a lion's mouth there. That's a, an artist's impression. But as I say, we need, to, we need to see it rather than just read it. I think you'd agree with me that if that beast was to walk in here now, it would be quite frightening, wouldn't it? That's not a, a pleasant picture. It must have been rather disturbing for John when he got that picture. I'll leave it up for a little bit and, and then we'll take it down so you can listen to me rather than looking at this beast. So this, this first beast that comes out of the sea, I said there's a reference to Daniel chapter 7 in Daniel chapter 7 speaks there of the, the, the beast that's a leopard and also a bear and also a lion. And then there's a fourth beast which had ten horns and you can see where that would relate in here. So if you were in first century Israel and being told about this revelation, it would connect with you. Be very, very easy to connect in terms of that vision. In Daniel, those, those crowns represented kings or, or powers that, that were yet to come. And you see it worked out a little bit in history. So this particular beast, which has got these crowns, I suggest that these crowns don't represent wealth, but they represent government or authority or, or kingdoms or empires. Think about John's own time. You can take the, the picture off again now. I don't want us to look at this for too long. Look at me. I quipped with the family earlier that that's the beast and this is the beauty, all right? <laughs> John's own time, it was the Roman Empire. This is about AD 70. The Roman Empire was, was raging. And, and remember, this is before Christianity has been accepted and encouraged by the Roman Empire. At this point, they were very anti-Christian, very anti-Christ. And so for John, the Roman Empire was full of Caesars at different times who would say things like, worship me. Worship the empire. I am God. Caesar is Lord. The blasphemous names that are mentioned here in this passage as on, on the names that are being proclaimed could easily have been a reference to those Caesars. And then look at verse 3. Verse 3 says this. What's this about? One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. 
A fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. Let me make a point I'm going to return to a, to return to a few times in this. Notice the, the twisting, the deception there. A fatal wound, but a fatal wound had been healed. What do we proclaim about Jesus? We proclaim Jesus, who was crucified, died, buried, and then raised from the dead. Here we have a twisting of that in this particular beast. A fatal wound, but a a fatal wound that had been healed. Throughout this passage, we'll see this twisting, this deception, this this not-quite-truth, these untruths that are coming out from the beasts that are in the passage. The nastiest emperor at the time, around AD 70, was, was Emperor Nero. You can look this up in history if you want to, but Emperor Nero was, was very anti-Christians. One of the things he was known for, apparently in history, was, was burning Christians alive. Not always for kind of political gain, but just because he was a bit of a nasty piece of work. There was a myth after he died. It's a bit weird how he died. It was a kind of pseudo-suicide in that he, he was going to take his own life and then bottled out of taking his own life and then asked one of, his, one of his servants to kill him. So it was a kind of like a suicide. But then after that, there was a myth that grew up. I've written it down here, the Nero Redivivus legend, if I've pronounced that correctly. But the myth was this, that Nero would come back again, either himself or in the form of another emperor. A fatal wound, but a fatal wound that had then been healed. Maybe, at the time, as John is writing this, in this context of the Roman Empire, killing Christians, taking them into captivity, killing them by the sword, as it says later on in this passage, burning them alive, The reference there to the Roman Empire, that was a reference to Nero. Maybe that would have connected with not just him, but those early readers who were given uh, a copy of this revelation as it was read out to them. And notice throughout this, the references again to the dragon, the devil. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, verse 4. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The dragon is the one behind the beast. The beast is calling people to worship the beast and also the dragon. Historical reference, perhaps, to the Roman Empire at the time and Nero and what was going on. Historical reference back to Daniel chapter 7. But I suggest that overall what this is referencing, rather than any one specific time, but it's something that continues to get repeated. The beast represents a political state or authority or government that is anti-Christ, that calls people to worship the state, to worship the government, rather than to worship the Lord. Have we not seen over history such places, such kingdoms, such states and governmental authority rising and falling again. We can go right back, right into the Old Testament and right up into almost current days. Babylon, Assyria, 
the Roman Empire, Hitler's Germany, Stalin's Soviet Union, Pol Pot's Cambodia. We may even want to look around the world today, and I'm very cautious not to do that. But where we can see persecution of Christians going on, where Christians are dying for their faith and they're being opposed by a government or authority or rule that is anti the Christian message. This has gone on from that point and continues today. That cosmic sense of that battle that is going on with the beast of the political state against Christianity. The 42 months that are referred to here, and again, Eddie's been great at pointing this out over the weeks. The 42 months, the 1260 days, the time, times, and half a time, three and a half years, not to be taken literally, but the age of the church. The age of the church continues to have a battle with the dragon, a battle with political states and beasts that are anti the Christian message. That's beast one. Beast two. Are you all strapped in still for this? uh, I know this is heavy stuff, but hey, we've got to do it. It gets better. There is light at the end of the tunnel, trust me. Beast two. I'm going to call this uh, an unholy trinity here with beast two. Because the purpose of the second beast, so this is the beast that comes from the land rather than from the sea, the purpose of this second beast is to serve the first beast. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, it exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. Verse 14, Because of the signs it was given, it was doing these kind of magic, miraculous kind of, inverted commas, signs, it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast. And then verses 15 and 16, the second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, etc., etc., to have this mark on their hands or on their foreheads and this number. We're going to get into the number in a minute. My point is, there's an unholy alliance, an unholy trinity between the devil, the dragon, the first beast, the political state, anti-Christian, and then this second beast. They're all in it together, serving one another, but ultimately serving the devil. So, what is this beast? I didn't put a picture up there, because actually, I think this is quite a simple picture. Verse 11. This beast had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. Two horns like a lamb, but spoke like a dragon. Now, does that remind you of anybody else's words in Scripture? It certainly did me. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 says this, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, inwardly ravenous wolves. Here we have a lamb, but actually speaking like a dragon. Jesus is saying, sheep's clothing, but actually ravenous wolves. 
Or later on in Matthew, in, in, in Jesus' own kind of apocalyptic literature bit, in chapter 24, in verse 24, Jesus says this. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive. False Christs, false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive. That is Jesus' own words here. So what John is seeing, this beast looked like a lamb, but actually spoke like the devil, and that's how we're interpreting the dragon. I suggest it's clear what that is suggesting. It's suggesting some sort of false religion or really false Christianity. I come back to my twisting point, my perversion point, and it's a really important one. You see, if the enemy, if the devil was to turn up dressed in, as often portrayed, you know, in red with horns, with a big trident, and stood at the door, we wouldn't go after him, would we? We'd say, oh, we recognise that, that doesn't look very nice, we'll keep away from that. But actually, he's the father of lies. He comes to twist and deceive and pervert the truth all the way through in our lives, in the history of the world. Because a twisting, a deception, a not quite the truth will draw people in. Hence this second beast being a twisting of Christianity, a fake Christianity, a false Christianity that might draw people in, even with some signs and some miracles. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm into the signs and the wonders and the miracles. But this particular fake, not truth, that comes from the land, draws people in. A preaching, perhaps, that is about devotion to state and government ahead of devotion to Jesus. Just pause and see if you think that is ever familiar in things that you read or hear around the world. Where salvation is found in a human system rather than in Jesus. Think of all the numerous sects and cults and whatever we've had in the last sort of hundred years or so where uh, it's usually a man, sadly, but sometimes a woman, but when a man comes to the fore and they, they perform some kind of trickery maybe or maybe some sort of science and that and they draw people into these cults, but it's not the truth and gradually you hear about abuse and cults and suicide packs and all of that kind of stuff. And if we want to think again about the link between the devil, the political state and fake Christian message and fake church, Hitler's Germany again. The rise of, rise of Nazism nearly a hundred years ago, where the church was backing Hitler. The church was standing alongside the state. Any twisting, any perversion, where Jesus is not preached as the only Saviour and Lord is a twisting from this beast. Which then moves us to verses 16 to 18, the 666 stuff. Let me just read it out again to remind us. This 
Beast number two forces all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark and their right hands are on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who is in sight calculate the number of the beast, for it is a number of a man. That number is 666. Alice in Wonderland time, you really can go down a rabbit hole with this one. You really can. You can spend hours and hours. You could probably spend the rest of your life, if you wanted to, reading everything that's been written about 666 and what it means and who it might refer to. Even when we were up in London yesterday, uh, we were wandering through London and I saw of a, a particular world leader, a, a photograph, and it had 666 written on them. There are loads of different interpretations of it, and there have been. When I was uh, growing up back in the 80s, um, it wasn't my kind of music, um, but Iron Maiden brought out a song. Uh, some are smiling and nodding, might remember it. 666, the number of the beast. Now, it wasn't, I wasn't, wasn't into rock music anyway, personally. I was more of a kind of jazz soul kind of guy, as you probably guessed. Um, but a very good friend of mine, his brother was a drummer, and I used to go around his house and, you know, suddenly his, his brother would put on 666, the number of the beast, and I'd go home afterwards with it just ringing round and round in my ears. Some 25 years ago, I guess, a member of my church that I was leading at the time came up to me at the end of the service. This was at the sort of start of the internet, and he said to me, uh, Matt, I need to have a chat with you about something. I said, yeah, please do. He said, um, in, uh, in the Hebrew alphabet, does someone want to get that? You got it, thank you. Oh, no, nearly. It may be the Lord ringing to correct me on what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm fine with that. <laughs> thank you. So this friend said to me, he said, in the Hebrew alphabet... Uh, letters had a numerical value. And he said, um, the numerical value of, of W is six. And he said, so the World Wide Web is actually 666. And, and he was quite, quite serious with me. This was the start of it all. And I mean, if you then take a literal approach on buying and selling, you could see where that could go. Oh, well, that must be the number of the beast. Don't go back and buy anything on Amazon or whatever you might want to buy on. But it was quite a genuine concern that he had. Now, I don't think uh, he'd agree with that now. But my point is, there's been all kinds of historical and more current interpretations around this. Again, if you want to get into it, um, it's all around maths. There's a lot of stuff around maths and Pythagorean theorems to do with rectangular numbers and, and uh, uh, triangular numbers. Uh, I don't know. My, my wife's got a maths degree. She might be able to explain it to me. Um, I don't really understand it. There is something called gematria. That's the most popular one. Gematria or gematria, G-E-M-A-T-R-I-A. Uh, which is a bit similar to what my friend was doing 25 years ago, which is this numerical equivalent of each letter. And you can read this in, in commentaries and that, you could Google this probably. Perhaps not surprising, when they do this, you have to play around with it a little bit with the, the Hebrew and the Greek and what have you, you can end up with Emperor Nero again. 
our old enemy from AD 70. And then if you take the fact that Nero's head was on the coins and you want to take a literal approach there, obviously you needed to have a Nero coin in order to buy or sell anything. On that buying and selling as well, if there is something future in this, uh, I don't suggest we, we interpret that literally either with the number because we're not interpreting anything else literally. I think it's more the all-pervasive nature of the evil, of the beast, of the devil, of the effect of worshipping him. That's what that speaks about. So, what do I think? In case you're interested in what I think. I don't think the numbers are to be taken literally. I think they're representative. And you can read that last verse... It's a number of a man, that number is 666. Instead of seeing it as a specific man or woman or person in time, you can read it, and it's in some translations, as man's number or humankind's number as opposed to God's number. Throughout Revelation, the number seven seems to be uh, John's favourite number. And seven, very often, not always, but very often through Revelation, is the number of of perfection, the number of completeness, the seven spirits of God, the seven eyes of the Lamb, etc., etc., is God's number. So if seven is God's number, what's six then? Well, six is a falling short. Thank you very much, Nigel. The words out of my mouth. Six is a falling short of seven. And not quite seven. A perversion of the truth. A twisting of the truth. And if you take this unholy alliance, this triumvirate, then a six to represent the dragon, the devil. A six to represent a political state raging against the church. And a six representing fake Christianity against the truth. 666. This next statement you won't probably hear me say again in this church. I could be completely wrong on what you've listened to for the last 25, 30 minutes. You know, I don't try to preach things that are wrong, but I could be completely wrong. And, and here's the bigger statement, I'm not that bothered if I'm completely wrong. This is where I took the mickey at the start about Jamie. I actually agree with him. I don't really think we have to worry about the beasts or the number. Why am I saying that? Well, what does it say in verse 8? I suggest this is the key verse to understanding all of this. All inhabitants, of the, sorry, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. Everybody, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. It doesn't matter who the beast is. 
beast one or beast two. It doesn't matter what 666 does or does not represent. The one question that does matter, that we have to ask ourselves, is, is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Because if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, the Lamb slain before the creation of the world, you won't worship the beast. You won't take a 666 number on your head or on your forehead. The next bit, the very next verse in this scene, talks about having the Lamb's name on our foreheads. The Lamb's number, so to speak. I think the title that was given to this this to me was uh, The Two Beasts, but I gave this my own title for this preach. Simply this, when faced with the beast, worship the Lamb. When faced with the beast, Worship the Lamb. Is your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? We'll hear, no doubt, a little bit more about that book in subsequent weeks. It's there in Revelation 3. It's also there in Revelation 21. A book held by the Lamb with all the names of those who come to acknowledge him as Saviour and Lord. A book that hasn't been opened yet, but one day will be. Again, the context of first century Israel and John. Lamb is mentioned 29 times or more in Revelation. See, it's not really about the beasts, it's not about the numbers, it's about the lamb. And their whole context is that Old Testament context of sacrifice and the lamb and the lamb, the scapegoat that went out into the desert. They would have got this. And they would have known that all of that was dealt with on the cross, when the lamb slain before the creation of the world, that cosmic sense of Jesus having been crucified before the creation of the world, but in God's mind, but at a point in time where all sacrifice was dealt with. That's the lamb. That's the lamb who holds the book. That's the one that we've been worshipping this evening. The same John who got this revelation is the one who writes the Gospel of John and records in John chapter 1, verse 29, the words of John the Baptist as Jesus comes up out the water at the start of his ministry. And what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That must have been ringing around John's heart as he got this revelation. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One final story and then I'll give back to Victoria. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a famous Victorian preacher who preached right through the back end of the 1800s. I'm a little bit biased because I was trained at Spurgeon's College so I think he was a pretty good guy. Did a lot of his preaching up at the Metropolitan Tabernacle uh, up near Elephant and Castle. Uh, And his his preaches were were written down afterwards and they'd be posted out in different parts of the world. They're fantastic stories of of men on ships serving in the Navy and they'd get this sermon from Spurgeon that was preached six months before and be read out and men would come to know Jesus as Lord because there was such an anointing on the words that he was preaching. And in 1857, he was due to be preaching in the old Crystal Palace 
Crystal Palace, the, the, the glass framework that was over there in where Crystal Palace as a place is now, which actually subsequently burnt down. And he was going to be preaching there to something like 23,000 people. And so a couple of days before, he went along to do a sound check. And of course, sound checks in 1857 weren't, you know, one, two, one, two. It was him having to say something from the front. This is recorded in a biography of Spurgeon. He stood at the front and declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there was a workman up in a gantry fixing something up there in preparation for Spurgeon coming to preach in two days' time. And he heard those words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Was so struck by that, went home, wrestled with God and gave his life to the Lord, repented of his sins and turned to Jesus. Behold, take hold of, look at, worship, give your all to the Lamb of God, Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world. If you're here tonight, and you're yet to do that, I would urge you, invite you to gaze upon the Lamb, to look at Jesus who died for your sins in the same way as he did for that man in 1857. The same Lamb who loves every one of us here and gave his life for us. Don't leave here tonight without turning to Jesus turning away from whatever muck is going on in your life, whatever that may be, small or big. And for those of us who are already Christians, let's be confident in the days in which we live. Let's continue to proclaim this message. Let's point people towards the Lamb. Because there will be people who ask you, they ask me, what's Revelation 13 all about? They may not put it in those terms, but what's going on in the world? We can get caught up in all of the beasts and the numbers. But please, let's proclaim the Lamb. Amen.